0: Colossians chapter one going to stop uh, where we were in Matthew for a week, we come to a rather difficult passage that uh, required more than I wanted to uh, spend on it this morning with the Lord's Supper and all. So, Colossians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 21 to 23. God delivered the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt he instituted the Passover to be observed repeatedly by his people in that Passover um, celebration there was a particularly tender moment where the youngest child at the table would speak up and say father what does this mean why do we do this and in obedience to the biblical command the father would tell the story again But we were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand and and, and brought us into the land of promise, which he gave to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey his decrees and to fear him so that we might always prosper in the land that he gave us. Year after year, generation after generation, fathers retold that story of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. It's morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but for us this is like the Passover. It's the it's the, it's the, the, the memory, the, the, the commemorating uh, of our great deliverance that God has brought. And so as we come to this table, it's appropriate that it raises in our children's minds the same question why do we do this? What does it mean? And for us parents, and for me as a pastor, it becomes the opportunity to tell again the good news of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So let me read the passage, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free." from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that was that, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and which i paul have become which i paul have become a servant let me suggest two truths that are found in this passage the first is this jesus made peace with god for us jesus made peace with God for us. You know, we love the notion that mankind is in, a, in this noble quest for God. Michelangelo painted a picture suggesting that on the, on the ceiling of the Sistine chapel, a man, stretching out his hand to God and God stretching down until the fingers almost touch. We, we like to think that's how it is. But here in verse 21, the Holy spirit of God paints quite a different picture. Here it says, no, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. God says our natural state is one of alienation and estrangement. Anything but peace with God. Verse 21 describes it in three different ways. It talks about our natural state, which was one of alienation. talks about our attitude toward God, which is one of being his enemy. And talks, uh, and, and, and talks about our actions, which are naturally wicked. So let's talk about each of those three things for a moment. First, our natural status is that of an alien. We can't help it. We were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Born on the wrong side of the wall, if you will. We we're born in the wrong country. We're outsiders to God. Aliens, foreigners, to God and His kingdom, His promises. In Phrases Two, the Spirit gives that same definition of our natural state: since you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners of the covenant of promise, to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in this world. You see, this notion that floats around that we're all God's children and God is our wonderful Father. This does not square with what, what the Bible actually says. God says, I don't know you. You were born in iniquity. You are by nature rebels. You are my enemies. You're foreigners to me. That's our status, naturally. Second, our alien status is reflected in an attitude then Of antagonism and hostility and defiance. Verse 21 says, We are enemies in our minds. That sounds a lot like what the prophet Jeremiah said when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That doesn't mean we're not religious, we may love religion. With its holy rituals and its holy food and its holy vestments. We may love all that. But Jesus said, it's not where you are. It's not what goes in you, what you eat. It's not what goes on you, what you wear. It is what comes out of you that defines and defiles you. Jesus says, for from within, out of men's hearts... Come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly. All these things come from inside and make a man unclean. And who of us dares to say that nothing like that ever comes from inside of us? From our secret thoughts, secret motives. Jesus was right. We're defiled inside, in our minds and hearts. And because of that, we are estranged from God. Then, third thing, that alien status and the defiled heart then produces rebellious actions. Verse 21. We were enemies because of our evil behavior. There's a great proverb in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whatever you think, that's what you are. That describes you. And sure enough, the evil nature, the evil heart, produce all kinds of evil behavior. It certainly did in Colossae, to the people to whom this was written. Among these, these people, chapter 3 describes the things which belong to their earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, by the way. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. That's a behavior that they knew. And if we're honest, we probably say, yeah, we know about that behavior, too. You see, if you think our problem is just ignorance of God or that we're just out of touch with our true self or that there's a little misunderstanding between us and God or or lack of communication by people in the world, if that's what you think the problem is, you need to listen to God's assessment. It's quite different. He says, we and God are at odds. We continue to rebel against our creator. There's a hostility that shows up in our attitude and in our actions, and God is offended by our sin. He will not tolerate it forever. He will put down this rebellion. And his holy anger towards sin is not just a general thing. He actually holds us accountable. Well, it's just wonderful good news, isn't it, In this passage? God uh, describes it as it is, whether we want to admit it or not. But there, there is good news. The apostle says, once that was the situation, but now, and he talks about how Christ just changed it, which brings us to our second, back to the, our, our point, Jesus made peace for us with God. Verse 22 says, he did so by reconciling us to God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You know, we tend to think that reconciliation, we t- tend to think of that as something that God does inside of us to make us care about him more. That's like thinking that if you're arrested and, con- and, and convicted of a crime, that the c- concern of the judge would be to make you feel good about society again. You know, the truth is the judge doesn't care how you feel. You're the guilty one. It's the law that must be satisfied. It's the offense against society that must be removed. And so in the same way, the reconciliation which Christ bought addresses not our feelings, but addresses God's justice. Through Jesus, God's justice has been satisfied in regard to our sin, which so offended his holiness. So his wrath toward us has been averted. Now, how did Christ do that? Did he pull some strings with his father, fast talk God into looking the other way at our sin? Or did he plea bargain, get us off with a lighter sentence that we can live with? No, 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 he didn't do any of that. He died in our place. He took our punishment. Verse 23 says it clearly. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. You see, our hope this morning, if we really are the sinners that God says that we are, our hope this morning is not that God is a soft old grandfather who will look the other way because he likes us and ignore our sin. No, our hope is that God is the God of absolute justice. That's our only hope. But his justice has been completely satisfied when Jesus took our punishment. When Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't hallucinating. God was punishing him in our place. Jesus was undergoing the separation from the Father that we deserve. And so because of the work of Jesus, God completely changes our status. Rather than destroying us as his enemies, he forgives us. He declares us acquitted, better than acquitted. He declares us positively righteous in his sight. And he adopts us into his own family forever. In Christ Jesus, we are changed from enemies to friends, from sinners to saints, from the wicked to the righteous, from condemned to justified, from aliens to citizens of the kingdom of God, from orphans into sons and daughters of God. Jesus truly made peace for us with the Father. Is that what your status is before God this morning? Though everyone may think well of you, are you really still at odds with God? Wicked attitudes, actions revealing the rebellion of your heart? Or have you given up on that losing battle and entrusted yourself to Jesus and rest in what he did to reconcile you to the Father? I call you to believe, to cast yourself upon his mercy. Jesus alone can change us, change our status, change our heart, change our behavior. Which brings us then to our second point, which is simply this. So now, keep on believing. Now keep on believing. Verse 23, it's an interesting verse, it begins with the word, if. Don't you hate that word? If someone tells you all kinds of things will be yours and we reconcile to God and peace with him and this and this and this. If we do this all the time. People call me on the phone. Hello, Mr. Hitchcock. You have won a free vacation. Don't believe it. No, you didn't. Because there's coming, if you listen, there's coming a big if that's very costly. There's no free vacation. There's a big If. And so we're in danger of thinking that that's the way it is with God, too. That here God uh, spells out all the glories of uh, being right with him. And then he says, if he raises a condition. Which God attaches to his promises. Look at verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. All these things are true. All these wonderful things, free of accusation, if, 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 what are we making of this? Clearly there's a condition here. You can't say, well, it doesn't really say that. It really does say that. But it would be a blatant contradiction to turn the good news that he's just told us about, Christ reconciling us to God, to turn that into some kind of bad news by announcing that it has a price tag that none of us can afford so what's the answer? What do you do with the if, with the condition? I think it's, it, it lies in understanding the difference between English and Greek a little bit, and I know some people hate for me to talk about Greek, but the New Testament is written in Greek, not English, and Greek is a very, very specific language that I'm not an expert in, but I read the experts. One Greek scholar explains this. He said, the construction translated if, or provided that, does not express doubt. You see, when we say if, we're always raised that doubt it may not be true. Yes, there's a condition, but there is no uncertainty about Jesus saving us. I know that sounds contradictory. A condition, but no uncertainty. So let me explain with an illustration, and this is one of my very favorite illustrations, and so you've heard it before and you will hear it again from this passage or some other passage. I just, I think it speaks to the condition of our salvation. Picture yourself, it's a beautiful day, I saw people, somebody parked in front of my house trying to get their boat ready early this morning, heading out to get on the water. So you're out on the water, you're far from land, you're cruising out there, watching the whales, whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden, something goes wrong and your boat sinks. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty day, but let me tell you, the water's cold out there. And you're out there treading water outside of land and outside of anybody, and you're chilled to the bone, and you ache with exhaustion, and minutes turn to hours, and you're losing hope fast. And slowly you have to begin to admit to yourself that you really have no hope of survival. You cannot help yourself. You're perishing. And then on the horizon appears this orange Coast Guard helicopter. And he flies right overhead and hovers over you. And the crew begins to lower a rescue basket down into the water. And from the bullhorn on the belly of the aircraft, a crewman begins to talk to you and encourage you. He says, we're gonna get you out of here. You, you, You don't have anything to fear. Just crawl into this wire cage, this rescue basket, And be be careful to sit right in the middle and hold on because it's going to sway a lot as we pull it up. And when we get you up here, don't try to help us get you in. You just sit tight. We will pull you into the the aircraft. You're safe with us. Wow, you've been saved. You've been rescued. Except that there's a condition. You must get into the basket. Or you will not be hoisted up into the helicopter and once you're in the basket you must not jump out of the basket you must stay there those are the conditions of your rescue oh so does that mean then that you're really being asked to rescue yourself well that's insane of course not you already gave up on rescuing yourself remember when you realize you're dying you're perishing you're going down No, you're only being told there is no other way for you to be rescued, except that you be in that basket. In fact, the truth is if you're too weak to drag yourself into that basket, they will put swimmers in the bottom in 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 the water who will lift you up and put you in there. In fact, even if you go unconscious. They will haul your limp, dying body into that basket and strap it down and hoist you up there safely into the helicopter. Your rescue is not in doubt for one second, but you must be in the basket to be saved. There's no uncertainty, but there's a condition, a warning which points out the seriousness of your situation. And the fact that there is only one hope for safety that rescue basket. Now, that's what God's saying to us in verse 23. There is no other hope but this gospel of Jesus dying on the cross, for us, the gospel that you believed and accepted. So stay there, stay in that basket, keep on believing. Paul first says that positively, continue in your faith, established and firm, or as Colossians two puts it, as you receive Christ Jesus, so continue to live in Him. Here we're just being reminded that the faith which, uh, the faith w- by which God saves us, is not punctiliar. That word's not in some of my dictionaries. I had to look harder for it. It's not punctiliar. It's not just a moment of time that faith. No, our faith is linear. It may begin with a decisive moment of time, but it doesn't quit. It goes on. It's a way of life. It keeps on believing in Jesus, keeps on trusting in Jesus. That's the the faith that we're called to. So, So Paul says that positively, and then he makes the same point negatively. He says, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. People at Colossae were... Being enticed to depart from simple trust in Jesus. Some false teachers were telling them that they needed something more. They needed something that was a little more elaborate, something that was a little more sophisticated, something that was a little more philosophical. The apostle says, There isn't anything else, guys. Stay in the basket. The gospel's your only hope. You just sit right there. You just sit there resting, depending on nothing but Jesus. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Jesus says trust me I'll save you keep on believing and what is it today and we are to believe the same old gospel that the Apostles preached everywhere the same gospel that the church has preached for 2,000 years that we were enemies estranged from God but Christ died for us and and took our punishment, and the third day rose again from the dead. And now, as we abandon hope in ourselves and trust in him, he reconciles us to the Father, forgiving our sins and bringing us to eternal glory. So this morning I call you to keep on believing. Rest secure in the rescue basket of God's grace in Jesus. When the rescue seems turbulent, and it, and it may, you know, if you're in that Coast Guard, I did this when I was flying, they put us through this stuff. You get in that basket, and you're coming up, and the, the downdraft from the helicopter is blowing you all over, and you're swinging around, and you're spinning, and all this, and you think, oh, I'm really in danger. No, actually, you're not in danger, but it's rough. It's turbulent. You're strapped in. You're going to be all right. But when, when it's turbulent, and you think you're about in danger being dumped out, when you think you might perish after all, no, 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 keep on believing the Lord knows what he's doing. Stay in that basket. Or when you're feeling stronger, perhaps, and you think, oh, I'm resting up now. I think I, oh, I can see land. I think I can make it. And you want to jump out of the basket and swim? No, no, no. No, keep on believing. There's no salvation out there other than this rescue basket. Don't jump out. Keep on believing. Stay there. Or as often happens, when you sense again how weak you are and how wicked you've been and you're suddenly overwhelmed with fear maybe the Lord might decide I'm not worth saving oh no don't give up hope rest in his promise that he will not turn you away Jesus is a friend of sinners how much of a friend of sinners when they're executing him, when they've got him nailed to the cross, he is praying for the people who put him there. Father, forgive them. He's not about to abandon you. He knew you were unworthy before he rescued you. That's why you needed a savior. You just keep on trusting him. Sit tight and see the salvation of your God. And so we come to the Lord's Supper where we not only hear, but we see and we taste and we touch the gospel story. And when our children ask, Why do we do this? Tell them again the story of God's grace. My son, my sweet little girl, we were God's enemies, we were foreigners, we hated him, we were doing our own thing. But Jesus came to rescue us. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He took our punishment, and God raised him from the dead. He ended our war with God. He made peace for us. And so now we come here to remember. But even more than just to remember, to eat and drink together and believe again what we've been believing. Here we hold fast to what we've said in the past. We receive and rest anew in the gospel. Today around this table, children, we keep on believing in Jesus until he returns and takes us home with him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have a way of making complicated what you make so simple. That we're lost and dying and you came to save us and that you did absolutely every bit of it because we we're so hopeless we couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't even make the right decision. But you grabbed hold of us and pulled us to yourself. Just give us a faith to believe that, to not think we can explain something that's better, come up with some better theory or something. And Father, once we believe it and trust you for our salvation, then give us the grace to keep on believing and not stray away, to not turn our back on it, to not think we have come up with a better idea. Wherever we are this morning, Lord, call us, hold us, keep us for yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.